while they're doing that, we can turn to our passage for this morning. That is 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. And uh, we won't be reading the passage beforehand because it's, it's a long story. Uh, 58 verses, all right? And so we're just going to be spending about two minutes on each verse. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Some of you guys are still doing the math. That would be me. Wait, 2 times 58? Yeah. Well, today's story is David and Goliath. We are continuing our series on the life of David. And David and Goliath is a, it's an underdog story. We all love underdog stories. We love seeing people overcome great obstacles or defeat powerful enemies. We love seeing the little guy win against the big guy or... Uh, someone accomplishing something that someone else said they couldn't do. We love those stories. In fact, uh, when reminds me when I was in high school, I used to play on a traveling soccer team. And we were going to go to this soccer tournament in Raleigh, North Carolina. But the people who are organizing the tournament, uh, our coaches told us that they uh, almost didn't let us go because they didn't think we were good enough that there would be no point in sending us because we would just lose. You know, I remember our, our coaches told us that story to motivate us, and we got really amped up and upset. And we said, what do you mean? Ah! And we, we went to North, Raleigh, North Carolina, and we actually won the tournament. It was pretty cool. I was like, wow, these things happen. That's pretty neat. We love those kind of stories. We don't really like stories where the little guy loses. They're not as inspiring. For example, when I was in middle school, I was on a basketball team, a little Christian private school in middle school, and our coach, we were pretty good. Our coach wanted to enter us in the national tournament. The only one that apparently was available was a tournament for high school basketball teams, and somehow he entered us in, and, and we were like, oh yeah, we can do this. We're good. And so we flew to Tennessee, we got a hotel, and we lost every single game. <laughs> The years between 12 and 18, they make a difference, apparently. Those stories aren't as inspiring. There's a reason we like stories like David and Goliath. Uh, They inspire us to, to conquer our giants. If they could do it, so could we. That's the uh, idea. And David Goliath, of course, is probably the most well-known underdog story ever. It's about a little guy who beats a really big guy with a rock and a sling. Um, the little guys defeated the big guys. Um, is, but is that really what the story is about? We see some shaking the heads. That's great. <laughs> Obviously, I don't think so. In fact, I, I don't think it's primarily about the little guy at all. Of course, that's in there. Of course, that's a part of it. But let's dive into our passage. Let's see who the focus is on in this famous story. All right, so we're in 1 Samuel 17, like I said before. We're right in the beginning of the story about David and Goliath. Um, If you remember the last time we were at David, it was about his anointing to be the next king by the Lord, right? Samuel anointed David, the youngest son of Jesse, to be the next king of the Lord. Really, the Lord anointed him so. The Lord had rejected Saul as king because Saul had disobeyed the Lord. He was not obeying the word of the Lord, so the Lord rejected Saul, 
And now David was anointed as the next king, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And right before our story, there's a little story about how the Spirit of the Lord came off of Saul. And so the Spirit of the Lord is upon David. He is, we as the reader know, know that he is anointed. He's going to be the next king. And Saul um, is no, no longer seen as the king of Israel in the Lord's eyes. Now, practical purposes, he still is the king. He still has the authority over the armies of Israel. And so now in our story, where we're at, is that uh, there's a war going on between Israel and the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines are uh, a consistent enemy of the people of Israel. This isn't the first time that they've met. The two armies are in the valley of Elah, which was a few miles southwest of Jerusalem. They are set on opposite sides of one another. They're ready for the battle. Um, The Israelites on one side in the much stronger Philistine army on the other side. And in the space in between stands this opposing champion of the Philistines. Let's look at his description in verse 4. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Gath was a Philistine city. Whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. Now, I want you guys to notice that the story takes its time describing uh, Goliath. They take their time describing this champion of the Philistines to you. The author tells you about his height. They tell you about what armor he's wearing, what weapons he has, how much his armor weighs, and even how much his weapons weigh, and even how they're slung in, on, in between his shoulder blades. Goliath is not a small person, even if you don't know exactly what these measurements are. A cubit is about 18 inches, and a span is about 9 inches. So Goliath was 9 feet 9 inches tall, at least according to the Masoretic texts. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was dressed in this sort of scale body armor that weighed somewhere between 125 and 220 pounds. He had a bronze coverings on his shins, most likely. He had a javelin of bronze hanging off his back and a spear tip on his spear that weighed about 15 pounds. And of course, just in case you were wondering where his shield was, it's apparently too massive for him to walk around with in addition to everything else. So he has another man carry it for him when he's not battling. All right, so this is not a small individual. This is Arnold Schwarzenegger and Ivan Draco and Thor Bjornsson combined. Thor Bjornsson is a very large, strong man. They're all combined into one giant man, and then they're suited up in Iron Man suit of armor. This is the most imposing man dressed in the best combat suit. So before the age of guns and explosives... There's no defeating this monster 
of a man. He's being presented as this unbeatable foe, and indeed, that's how the Philistines would have seen him, and the Israelites as well. And yet the words of the Lord should echo in our ears from our last story, chapter 16, verse 7. When the Lord spoke to Samuel about choosing a king, he said, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. So Goliath issues this challenge to Israel. Send out a champion to fight me. If your champion wins, then we will become your slaves. But if I win, then you will become our slaves. Of course, that's a promise that uh, the Philistines don't seem to keep after this story. But even the much stronger Philistine army had lost to battles, battles to Israel before this. So this representative warfare was a way to get around unnecessarily losing soldiers, especially if you were confident your champion could win. And who wouldn't be confident that Goliath could win a one-on-one battle against the Israelites? He goes on in verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, so Goliath yells threats at the Israelite army, and every Israelite, including King Saul himself, quakes in his boots. If you or I were there, We'd be trying to hide in the crowds too, I imagine, not being pointed at or unexpectedly volunteered. Who in their right mind would try to fight this behemoth of a man on a one-on-one battle? He's twice your height, twice your weight, and has the best military gear available. No one took him up on his offer, and for 40 days he came out um, shouting this challenge to Israel every morning. But... Immediately after this towering warrior is introduced, and the armies of Israel are, are cowering in fear, someone new to the story is brought in, someone new yet familiar. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Excuse me. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Okay, you guys might notice that I'm doing selected verses here. Right? We can't go through every verse in the entire chapter. Um, so we uh, here, again, we see David. Now, you might remember David. David was the youngest son of Jesse, the kid that Jesse forgot to even bring up when Samuel is coming down to anoint the next king of Israel. He left him with the sheep. David was a handsome young man, but he was small in stature. He was not an imposing presence like King Saul. He's not being presented here as a warrior. He was someone you let watch your sheep and make deliveries. In fact, that's exactly what he did. Jesse's oldest sons had the honor of fighting for King Saul and for Israel, while little David was assigned to delivering fresh cheese to his brothers. No one thought of him as a warrior. Why would you bring David to the fight? What could he do? One day, things happened to change. Let's continue on, verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. 
As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All right, so this has been going on for 40 days. Goliath would come in the morning and shout his challenge and defiance and mocking to Israel while David would be bringing his brothers every food every now and then. And up till now, Goliath had been able to get away with his threats without David hearing them. But now, by mere chance, David hears the challenge from the giant Philistine. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Again, for 40 days, Goliath is defying the armies of Israel, the nation of Israel, including King Saul. And for 40 days, the men in Israel would flee from Goliath. No one wanted to face him. Goliath would shout that he's defying the armies of Israel, and the Israels would cower because they believe this man is defying the nation of Israel. And despite the king's offer of wealth and prominence in the kingdom of Israel, no one is willing to face the giant. That is, no one until now. Verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And it's with these words that we hear David speak for the first time in the book of Samuel. We hear mention of God for the very first time in this story, in this battle. And it's from the man whom God calls a man after his own heart. In the verses before, Goliath is saying he is defying the armies of Israel. The Israelites are afraid of Goliath because he defies the nation of Israel. But David says, no, you are not defying Israel and its armies, but you are defying and mocking the living God. David inserts God into the picture, into the story. In essence, David is saying to his countrymen, doesn't believing in a living God make a difference in all of this? By reminding the men of their living God, David injects hope into a hopeless situation. Before David speaks, it's just the Israelites cowering in fear. Before David speaks, it's just the Philistines looking to conquer the Israelites. And before David speaks, it's just the giant threatening the armies of Israel. But when David reminds the men of their living God, everything changes. It's no longer a big army versus a little one. It's no longer just a giant against people half his size. It's now a giant against the living God. Hopelessness turns into hope. So you see now what the story is really about. It's about the name and the honor of God being defiled by the Philistines. David is willing to fight quite possibly die because the honor of the living God is being mocked by this uncircumcised Philistine. Before this man was referred to as the champion of the Philistines, he is the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, the 
the undefeatable man. But David now simply sees him as the uncircumcised Philistine. Who is this faithless man that mocks the Lord? David has a passion that the living God would be glorified, so he fights for God's glory, willing to risk his life and willing to risk ridicule, as we'll see next. Verse 28. How do the people respond to David? Now, Eliab, his brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Do you hear the contempt in Eliab's voice? Who are you to come here and make this grand stand against Goliath? You're a nobody. You have nothing. You just have a few sheep, and you're not even taking care of them. Who's taking care of your sheep? And then he omnisciently declares to understand everything that goes on in David's heart, to presume to understand it. Doesn't that sound just like a big brother talking down to his littlest brother? You dumb kid, leave the real fighting to the real men like me and go back to your sheep where you belong. You have nothing to offer us. And soon David's words become known to Saul. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. Again, David experiences more contempt, this time from King Saul himself. Saul says, What are you going to do? You have no experience. Goliath has been fighting his whole life, and you have nothing How could you possibly defeat this man? You're just going to die, and we're going to have to pay the price for your failure. So essentially, David has three obstacles here. The first being Goliath, who later on says he's just a puny kid. His next enemy is his oldest oldest brother, Eliab, who questions what he could even bring to the battle. And his third opponent is King Saul, who questions how he can fight with no battle experience. One commentator puts it this way that I found helpful. David has no stature, no resources, no experience. And that describes most of us, doesn't it? No stature, no resources, no experience. How are we going to fight the battle? But David's faith was not in stature, resources, or experience. He wasn't going to fight for God's glory with a flashy resume, but he was going to fight for God's glory with God on his side, as we'll see in verse 37. Let's continue on. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And this is, in fact, how he convinces Saul to allow him to fight. He didn't have zero experience fighting ferocious enemies, In protecting his sheep, he came up against a lion, and he came up against a bear. But David makes it clear that it was the Lord who delivered him then, and it is the Lord who will deliver him now. So Saul allows him to fight. Verse 38. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. 
And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Okay, so first let's notice what Saul tries to dress David in here. Back in verse 5, it states that Goliath, that he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Here it says about David, he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. It's almost word for word the same description of Goliath back in verse 5 and of Saul trying to dress David now. Saul is being depicted as trying to match might with might against Goliath. Goliath has a bronze helmet and bronze armor, so David must have a bronze helmet and bronze armor. But David realizes that it would be silly for him to try and match Goliath's might with his own. So he takes everything off. Maybe they don't fit. He's never used them before. So as nice as these weapons are, they won't be helpful in the battle. The might of Saul's armory will not help him win against Goliath. Instead, David chooses his own weapons. They're not the weapons I would have chosen, but they're the weapons he chooses. Let's compare the two men's battle attire, all right? Goliath, he has a bronze helmet, a suit of armor, bronze greaves, a spear, and a javelin. That sounds pretty cool. That's what I would go into battle with. Here's David. He has a stick, some rocks, a bag to hold them, and something to throw the rocks with. The contrast between these two warriors about to meet for battle is so drastic it seems absurd. Goliath is like the Incredible Hulk in a Batman suit. David is like Daniel Tiger because he loves to sing songs and play with sticks and rocks. This should be no contest. So David goes up to meet Goliath in between the two armies. And Goliath scoffs at David. This puny kid who cannot be a serious threat in his eyes. And then David speaks. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So here is David standing before the giant, ready to fight for the sake of the Lord's name, while at the same time acknowledging that it is the Lord who will fight for him in this battle. And you know the rest of the story. David takes one stone and slings it into the Philistine's head, and boom, down goes Goliath. Even without the best weaponry that Israel has to offer, the Lord defeats Goliath because the Lord doesn't need the best things of the world to defeat the giant. What he does choose to use instead is someone who is wholly dependent on him. The point I want to leave us with from the story is this. Let us live for the sake of God's glory because he fights for us. So what's the lesson that we should learn from this story? Is the lesson that 
you know, if I challenge LeBron James to a one-on-one, as long as I say, this is for God's glory, I'm going to jump over his head and dunk on him and win my one-on-one with LeBron James. Obviously not, because that's not really for God's glory. That's for my glory, right? So how do we live for God's glory? How do we fight for him? What does that look like in the Christian life? Can we say that it matters more than our reputation, our advantage, or our security? So these questions may not be answered in a great kind of awe-inspiring battle, um, like between David and Goliath. Fighting for God's glory may look more like the everyday and mundane things in life for us. I can't think of a more common place in our home than, than in our own homes where Christian men and women are defying the name of God through sinful behavior that affects their loved ones. Or in the business world where it's far easier to do what it takes to make a quick buck than to live with integrity for the Lord. Or in our social circles, our social media, where it's far easier to express our anger, point the finger, rather than engage in meaningful conversation. So let's fight for God's glory through faithful obedience to his word. And as we seek to obey God through faithful dependence upon him, let us remember that he is with us along the way, fighting on our behalf the battles that we cannot fight alone. He will help us finish the race. He will give us victory. And victory in Christ doesn't mean health and wealth and success in worldly terms. God does act on our behalf, but it is not always through physical and material means. You can be victorious and stricken with illness. You can suffer setbacks and loss in life of many kinds, in family or marriage or business, and God still can be working in your life to bring you through those. Our God strengthens us for battles ahead, and he does not waste our faithful obedience to him. Now, Christ's death on the cross should remind us that our God is willing to leave his comfortable place and his throne in order to save us on our behalf. And his resurrection that we just celebrated last week should remind us that we serve a living God. Christ is alive, and he fights for us. So let us respond by living for his glory while we rely on him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of David and Goliath. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are with us now. That as Christians, we have your spirit indwelling within us. And that you guide us in how we should live through your word. And that you guide us through every challenge in life, Lord, that we are not alone, and that Christ's work did not end on the cross in the grave, but that he rose. And so the living God is with us, and he helps us. And as we faithfully obey your word, Lord, you use that faithful obedience for your glory. So we ask that you would help us, God, throughout this week to fight, to live, for your glory in every little thing that we do, knowing that it is you that fights for us along the way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.